Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you once again for checking us out. This is episode number 48 of The Next Track. We have been trying to get our guest today on for a while, but he has just been so busy playing music. He is one half of the electronic duo Darkside. Currently, they are on an indefinite hiatus. Guitarist, multi-instrumentalist, composer, producer, Dave Harrington. Dave, it's good to have you with us. How you doing? Hey, how you doing? Good to be here. Dave, I'm really happy to have you on the show. I've been listening to your music for a few years, and the way I discovered your music is really interesting. I've got a son who's a few years younger than you, and he's really into EDM, electronic dance music. And he took out a subscription with the record label Other People, which is run by your partner, Nicholas Jar. And one day in 2013 or 2014, he says, oh man, you got to hear this album, Psychic by Darkside. It's the greatest thing ever. And he sent me the album and I was blown away. And, and I'll say right now, it's, for me, it's one of the best albums I've heard this century. It's definitely in the top 10 or 20 albums of the century. Now, my son is like your hardcore fan. He's see, he lives in Paris. He's seen you, he's seen Darkside, I think, twice, and he's seen you once or twice in Paris. He collects every live video and live audio track that he can get. He's got a Tumblr, and I can't remember the name of the Tumblr, but I'll put it in the show notes, where he puts a bunch of um, Darkside videos and all that. And I was blown away by that album. And since then, obviously, I've been following the, the music you've done. Doug and I were talking before the, the show that the, I think the thing that sets your music apart from most other musicians is that the concept of genre. We did a show early in the history of this podcast talking about genres, and you seem to just not be in any genre. How would you describe the music you play? Um, yeah, I think, that that's a, I think that that's a true statement. I, I think the music that I play, you know, both in the context of Dark Side and in, on my own and in other ventures comes from being someone who grew up as trained as a jazz musician and then has now spent the last decade or so trying to figure out how to work improvisation and that training and that way of approaching music into all kinds of different contexts because I love all different kinds of music. So the idea of genre to me is sometimes useful in the kind of logistical way of getting ideas across, but has never been a governing principle. You know, I think that if you, not to stretch the idea too thin, but, you know, good jazz is not really about sounding like jazz with a capital J. It's about humans in a room together creating in the moment. And so I think that that approach applied to pop music or techno or, you know, improvisational music is, you know, kind of, the, the, for me, the only way to go. <laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting how much your music can vary from one record, from one live recording to another. And you, you distribute a lot of live recordings of Dark Side and your own band and Blade Runner and El Topo, and th there are tons of them. It ranges from, and, and I assume that the name Dark Side comes from the Pink Floyd influence, right? Um, it does come from, it, you know, really it just comes from, we had this one song, the first song that we made, and we just started calling it that. And we never talked about 
a Floyd thing. We just started calling the song that, and it kind of then stuck when we were like, well, we're, we're making an EP now, and we have too many songs. That's It just felt right. Yeah, and because you definitely have a bit of David Gilmore in your guitar style at times. Yeah, I, I, I'm not opposed to wearing some of my influences on my sleeve. I'm not going to pretend that I didn't spend a lot of time. Uh, I, was, I would say when I was young, but really you know, ever since, like listening to certain Floyd records. I mean, I love those records. So what I found really interesting, we'll, we'll, we'll go back and forward in time a little bit, but what I found really interesting was maybe a year ago, my son sent me a link to an article where you were talking about how you were influenced by Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead. Now, regular listeners of this show know that I've been a deadhead for more than 40 years. And I thought that was just so cool that you could have such a wide range of influences. And while I had tried to raise my son as a deadhead, um, I failed. <laughs> but at that point, I don't he think asked that that's me, true. I think if he became, a, if he's as big of a dark side fan, not not to compare us to the dead, but if he's as big of a dark side fan as you say, then I think you've succeeded. <laughs> well, I've succeeded in the fact that his musical interests are extremely eclectic. Yeah, I think he probably also gets that improvisational thing that they both have in common. Yes. Yeah. The experimental aspects, the instrumentation. I mean, if you can draw a line between The Grateful Dead and Dark Side, you are a pretty perceptive young fellow. Yeah. 100%. So he asked me for some live Grateful Dead tunes at that time, and I thought that was good. I felt that there was some sort of success there in my, you know, rearing of my child. But he does have eclectic taste. I'm, I'm not a big fan of the sort of electronic dance music that tends to sound formulaic but when i listen to your stuff it's more like listening to brian eno and you know someone going off on these extraordinary tangents instead of something that's just you know setting up a really fast beat to get people to dance in a club well thanks i, I think that you know i uh, i think that i came for me it's interesting because you know using being part of the electronic music community you know is um is a later development and it happened for me in the context of playing with Nico. And I ended up in Nico's touring band for his solo music with, because our mutual friend Will Epstein suggested me when Nico was first putting a band, a live band together to tour um, and kind of interrogate and expand upon the music on Spaces Only Noise and figure out how he wanted to present that very electronic album in a live context. And so that was when we first started working with no plan or idea that Darkseid would come out of it. Um, and so for me, that was kind of like what I'd refer to as a, like an electronic music boot camp because I had, while I had played a lot of different kinds of music up until that point, that was a scene that I had not been a part of. You know, I'd played Brooklyn indie rock. I'd been playing jazz for ages. I'd played, you know, I started playing in like kind of left field metal circles in New York right before I got got folded in with Nico. So it was for me, it was all very exciting right from the very beginning because it was like, wow, this is a whole this is a whole different way to look at structure. This is a whole different way to look at um, dynamics and music and how to use frequency, not just notes and how to use, you know, the idea of playing this using the system in a club as part of, you know, how you how you create your show, all of these things that were new to me. And so that was, and that was the level at which I think, you know, not to speak for him, but that's the level at which Nico is thinking about electronic music and about dance music is, you know, from the perspective of an improviser, because that's what he is as well. It's just what bonded us in the first place, but also from the perspective of someone who loves, like you say, Brian Eno, and someone who wants to use all of the elements at, that are you know at uh, at play 
in order to create a kind of immersive experience, which is what it ended up being what the, the mission for Dark Side, which was not simply, you know, if we play faster, they'll dance. It was, you know, if we stretch time, if we, you know, we'll change the feeling in the room, if we stretch tempo, we'll create different emotional feedback amongst the audience, you know, more than just measuring a good show by then by do people dance or not, you know, trying to create something that allows for, yes, if people can dance, amazing, but there's a lot more you can do in a big room than just worry about that. A lot of the videos I've seen, the people aren't actually dancing. They're watching you guys play. It's like a, a rock concert in a way. You've got really interesting lighting going on. You've got these waves of sound. It doesn't seem like dance music. <laughs> and at times it's not. I mean, you know, dance music is in the eye of the beholder, I think. Well, people danced at Grateful Dead concerts, but watching a concert, watching one of the Dark Side concert videos, you get more of a feeling of a carefully crafted rock band than an electronic duo, which, I mean, it's only two guys up there and you sound like a full band, which, you know, miracles of modern technology and all that. Well, that's part of the spectacle too. You want to see how are two people doing this? I mean, that's what would fascinate me, a minimum number of musicians and... Uh, a lot of sound and a lot of ideas going on. And as a musician myself, I would find that interesting. Yeah, well, we, we took, we, you know, we, um, we went to, because improvising was so important for us in how we figured out how to take this record that was made very meticulously and present it live, we didn't want to recreate the meticulousness of the record by leaning into the technology too much. We really kind of went out of our way to make, to set up a system where we could really go off the rails and things could get messed up if we didn't focus and interact with each other su such that we could then have both that level of risk <laughs> in the performance, not, not being a band and nothing against that. I mean, it's a different set of goals. If you're a band and you have your backing tracks and you have your, so your hit song and your single and you got to make it boom, boom, boom. Like that's a whole other thing. And I've, played with artists who do that and that is its own challenge but for us it was about creating the traps and like letting everything be a system that required us to improvise and and make it happen on the fly using the technology so such that i could be multiple guitars nico could be multiple synth players and drum machines at once being you know extra human <laughs> using the technology as extra limbs rather than as extra um uh, rather than as like magic tricks. <laughs> and you also seem to like your equipment. You like pedals and effects and all that. And I'll put a link in the show notes to a video interview with you on Guitar Power where you talk about the, the way you make your sounds. Uh, yeah, I mean, if uh, I could, you know, if you saw, I'll show you. I mean, this is not a good, this is not a good thing for a podcast, but for visual cue for you guys, we're in my house right now. And this is my studio. Okay. <laughs> and, and a bunch of guitars is, and keyboards. And this is the mixers. rig that I used on the Dark Side tour that I love so much that I didn't dismantle it. And this is like what I don't use very often. This is like the so it's a bunch of pedals on the floor there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, it's uh, to me, you know, I uh, I like the idea that the guitar can be, um, you know, I like kind of the extremes, which is why I like of. I, Let's see if I can get to this idea in a clear way. I like the extremes of the guitar in the sense that I love Jerry and Gilmore and uh, 
Bill Frizzell, Mark Ribot, people who are just masterful guitaristic guitarists, where the kind of players where you hear them play one note and you're like, oh, it's Jerry. You know, you, yeah. you hear Mark, you hear one kind of bend and a, you know, tremolo bar, and you'd be like, oh, well, that's Mark Rebow. You hear one chord and you know it's Bill Frizzell's sound. Exactly. And so I love that. But at the same time, I love the idea that the guitar could just be a vehicle for creating sound and not in a kind of like, uh, and, you know, a lot of what I use, this is maybe technical, but you can decide if it's interesting or not. A lot of what I use is not to transform the guitar to make it alien in the same kind of way that I don't like kind of magic trick. It's not magic trick stuff. Um, it's about, you know, expanding the, the tonal and harmonic possibilities of what just a single guitar could do. So a lot of what I use, it's about, it's, it's not like, it's not synthesis. It's, it's basically using it's kind of like it's almost weirdly old school in like a very kind of roundabout way where it's really about sampling. It's really about sampling and using delay and reverb to create layers that one guitar, that two, two hands simply couldn't do. And then at a certain point, that becomes the kind of alien synthesis. But it's not about, to me, what's exciting is not plugging in a pedal and being like, whoa, this pedal's crazy. It doesn't sound like a guitar anymore. It's about creating something that's somewhere other. Yeah. If you look at the history of the Grateful Dead, Jerry Garcia got into MIDI technology in the 80s. And it was like, okay, his guitar sounds like a trumpet, but he wasn't playing a trumpet. He was playing a guitar. It just had the trumpet sound. He didn't take it far enough to make it to, to he didn't take it far enough to make that sound unique. It just sounded like a guitar sounding like a trumpet. Yeah, it was that it was. Yeah, yeah it was. Uh, I feel bad saying anything negative about Jerry, but you know, it was, know. An, it was an unfortunate, it was a first gen of MIDI technology, you know, and, yeah. and at that moment, you know, props for respect for trying with the technology yeah. or attempting for being crazy enough to attempt to use the technology in a, in a meaningful way. But yeah, it was just the kind of the beginning, you know? Yeah. It's like, there are other people I like, you know, like I'm a big, I'm a big Daniel Lenoir fan and he, he, he does this too. I mean, Bill Frizzell does this to a degree as well. Um, this idea of it's kind of, it's heavily manipulated guitar, but it's still in the land of a guitar. I don't know. It's, yeah, but that, and that first Daniel Lanois album, it's just got these layers of sound that you immediately recognize as Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So Psychic from Dark Side came out in 2013, and then your next album came out under the name Dave Harrington Group. It's called Become Alive, and it came out last year, um, just about a year ago, April 2016. It's a very different type of album. It's a lot more atmospheric. It's less driven by melodies. It's more, it almost has a soundtracky sound to it. Is that what you were trying to achieve? Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that comes very naturally to me. I mean, what I was trying to achieve was, um, at the time, and this still is, I was, you know, I wanted to take the bitches brew model and see how far I could push it, basically. Um, that was kind of the mission going into the studio, which was that I got a, a group of fr friends and collaborators, people I'd known for some a really long time, all musicians I had relationships with, many of whom, most of whom had played together. So kind of a sense of community with a few curveballs thrown in the mix. And the idea was simply to record 
uh, improvisations that I would guide and lead and direct over the course of three days. And I would shift up the groupings and I'd be like, this one, I'm going to play B3 and we'll do vibes and theremin and let's see where that takes us. And then maybe on something else, I'd be like, okay, well, that was cool. But now let's bring in you and you and you and like you take a break. You look tired. And we kind of did that for three days. And um, me kind of starting to try to hear the record in my head a little bit and get get a kind of a, a roadmap going. Um, and then t I took it and I put it through what I showed you here in the studio before and, and put and, and manipulated it and, and taking the idea, the model, the simple model of, you know, the way that they made the bitches brew and the, the electric miles records where, you know, Tam was not afraid to put a hard tape cut and you can hear where they are. And that was part of the, the materiality of the music and it became part of the sound. And, you know, those records are hugely influential to me. That I, they're every time. There are few records that are like really, truly. Every time you listen to them, you hear something new. And for me, those records are that a hundred percent. I will never finish. I'll never know everything that's hiding in there. Um, and so I, I was really, you know, intrigued by that idea because improvisation was central. And yet, then it was also using the studio as you know a vehicle to create something that felt like a studio record because I also love, you know, I, we were talking about, you know, the Floyd records. I mean, the, what's amazing about those are, you know, how, how, you know, pristine and beautiful and how much it feels like you can feel the studio that it's, it's gone beyond just four people playing. It's, it's a full sound that, it, that, that represents like compositional intent. So that's what I was trying to kind of cross the divide between. Um, and then aesthetically where it ended up was a product of, you know, my leanings, which are really influenced by um, soundtrack music of all different eras, contemporary and and past. I mean, you know, Bernard Herrmann and Lalo Schifrin are, you know, two of my favorite composers and writers of all time. I mean, the number of times that I've listened to the Dirty Harry soundtrack <laughs> it's like it's a, a little obscene i mean it's to the point where i use it as a reference in rehearsals and i don't think people know what i'm talking about <laughs> to me it's like oh yeah you know like abbey road and and uh dark side of the moon and dirty harry <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's interesting to talk about film soundtracks now because uh, one thing i wanted to ask you about is these performances that you do where you improvise soundtracks to movies and i've got three that you distributed Branded to Kill, No Country for Old Men, and The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. First of all, these are fascinating recordings of music, of you're going in there, you know how long the film is, and you have to play for the whole time. But the second thing is that you're playing without a net. You've got this film. You There's no, you can't make a mistake. I mean, you can make a little mistake, but you've got to maintain what you're doing for an hour and a half. How did this get started, and and what is it like to play like this? Well, it is it is one of the most exciting. Uh, it's it is one of the most exciting contexts to improvise because it is really a high wire act. Um, and uh, in terms of how it got started, it a good friend of mine uh, named Jiffy Shaw used to run a venue in Williamsburg called Cameo Gallery, and I played there for years and years. Like it was one of the first places I started playing when I moved back to New York and I played there up until the last night it was open, which I, where I was playing the last night. Um, and he ran it 
he just, it was such a great community and it was a really wonderful venue. And I, you know, I'd played, I had played free jazz there. I played surf rock there. I played late night techno parties. I played in indie bands. It was like one of my, you know, that's to me, that's like one of the hallmarks of a great, you know, community building venue is that is that level of eclecticness and just open-mindedness for the, what, whatever the community wants to do. Anyway, cameo gallery holds a special place in my heart. And when Jiffy found out that it was closing, he came to me and he was like, Dave, I just got to tell you, like, it's done. We're, you know, the lease is up and they're going to turn this into a something or other. And, you know, Williamsburg is changing and we're not going to have the venue anymore. So for the next three months, let's do whatever you want. He's like, it's like, he's like the party's over. So let's just have fun. Like, I'm not worried about selling tickets anymore. I'm not worried about like selling beer anymore. Like, this is just the time for everyone who's played here to like, just let me know what you want to do. Let's have some fun. And so the last couple of months there were really amazing, doubly amazing because of that. And the first thing I said to him was like, what do you think about doing a live improvised film thing? And he was like, that's cool. He's like, you know, behind the curtain up there, there's a huge projection screen that nobody uses. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, I've been in here hundreds of times and that's been there the whole time. And so thanks to Jiffy and the strange circumstances, I had done this once in at Brown, where we did, uh, which was truly insane, where we did Alejandro Jodorowsky's uh, The Holy Mountain. And that was just, I don't know what we were thinking. I mean, that was really insane, um, but it was awesome. And so I had never, I didn't think that I would have the chance to do something like that again outside of a university context. You need the, you know, projector, you need like more infrastructure than your usual Brooklyn Rock Club can supply. But because of Jiffy, we did it. And we did, the first one we did was um, The Birds. And it was really just thrilling. And then Jiffy was so supportive of it before we before it closed. We got to do No Country in there for the first time. And then at that point, it word kind of got out in New York, and I got asked to do one at National Sawdust. And so then I did some there. And then it just kind of started becoming a project that people were excited about. I think um, because of the way that we do it, because it's improvised, it has this other element um, where, and I, I can't editorialize about whether or not it works, but I think it's kind of exciting. What I hope it is giving an audience as a performance is it's kind of a, it's kind of its own double feature in the sense that, you know, and just what people tell me after the shows, sometimes you forget that the band is there and you're just watching a movie. And then for a different audience member, the show is more about watching the band interact amongst themselves and the movie and being like, wow, how are they improvising this? How are they making these decisions? Because it's a completely different kind of improvising. It's not about the individual. It's about the film. I would think that it would bring out context from the film and from the music that maybe an audience might not expect. For instance, you may be drawing something out of the film that informs what you're playing, and that somehow feeds back on how a person in the audience perceives that part of the film. And, and that kind of evocative synthesis is what makes the whole event fascinating. I think that's exactly the hope, you know, especially because, you know, we've done now a spectrum of different films, ranging from silent films, foreign films, more contemporary films, you know, narrative film. Um, but what I always strive for, and which makes it harder, but the selection of the film is still very specific to try to achieve exactly what you're talking about. Um, because 
what I don't want to do is the kind of here's a band playing and there's some there's a visual thing happening as well. That's all well and good if you're like a band with songs. You know, there's lots of ways to do that. But for me, what's really exciting is the really committed challenge of having to play to the film. The film becomes another member of the band in that respect and kind of the conductor. And so when we rehearse them, that's that's what I try to impart to the musicians. And a lot of I've used the same circle of of players and a lot of them have now done multiple films with me they've done so we have a different kind we do a different approach depending on the film certain things in the system of improvisation change but the really important thing is that i is that everyone gets on the same page of you know the film is already like it's up to us to i kind of talk about it where like it's up to us to ruin the film <laughs> and and that's a kind of a positivistic way to say like you, know, you have to recalibrate your improviser brain and that's part of why it's kind of, why it's exciting is because you end up doing things that you would never do if you were just playing a show, even if you were just playing a fully improvised show. And and yet the music stands on its own as interesting. I mean, I've been listening to these without having the films, but of course now I'm thinking I got to find some of these movies, put them on while I'm listening, because that'll be even better. That'll be like watching The Wizard of Oz while listening to Dark Side of the Moon, right? Exactly. That kind of thing. <laughs> yes, totally. Yeah, I would recommend doing that, especially with the. Uh, it's probably it's probably easiest to do with the. Um, the recording of Caligari because it's a silent movie silent movie and then you you get the timing right and you hit the if you can get the timing to happen then you'll be good and and that's a that's also just one of my favorite that's become it was one of my favorite silent movies it's become one of my favorite films i mean doing that one i really kind of fell in love with that film all over again it's crazy to me um how kind of revolutionary and modern and psychedelic it seems for a you know for German expressionist silent film. It's like, it's really far out. I think Bill Nelson did a, an album of music for that film in the early 1980s. You familiar with that? Don't know that, but I'm going to go look it up when we get off here. Yeah, it, it's out of print because it was on his label Cocteau Records, which is long since out of, uh, out of print, but you might be able to find a copy. Yeah. Your latest song is called Burn Your Money. It's part of a project called Our First Hundred Days. Can you just give a quick intro as to what the project is? Yeah, it's um, it's a project that's being run by um, some people from the Secretly Canadian group um, record label. And uh, they're folks that I've known uh, on and off for years. I've, you know, I've mixed stuff for artists of theirs and I've done remixes for them and they're people around Brooklyn I know. Um, and what they started was basically um, for the first hundred days of the current regime the um the they're releasing uh one song every day for um and to just to raise money for a couple of focused charities and it's really a simple idea but it's a cool model where it's basically a subscription model you kind of you pay one fee and then every time a new song comes up you know you can download it um and a lot of a lot of great artists that i that i love and friends of mine have been on the list and when they first started i just reached out to them i was like hey guys i love this idea I'd love to contribute if you need, you know, hundred songs is a lot of songs. If you're, if you're set, great. But if you need more, let me know. And they were like, we'd love to have you. And so it's really as simple as simple as that. So when I listened to that song, it struck me that it's sort of like the Derudi column meets Cabaret Voltaire. <laughs> cool. And, and that made me think of something that in music today, everything sounds like something else. 
what's interesting is how a musician like you can combine all these disparate in influences into something that's unique. Doug and I were talking before the show that, you know, we're we were teenagers in the 70s and we didn't have all of this music. We had the early rock, we had the early progressive rock and heavy metal, but we didn't have all the rest. And we're in a stage now where you have so many influences to choose from, but everything does. It's like, how did you say it earlier, Doug? It's not like a straight line. It's like a... Well, we were finding that the degrees of separation between genres are smaller. Yeah. And that you're finding spaces in between genres where no man has gone before. <laughs> yeah. And as we mentioned earlier, we were trying to figure out how to describe your sound. Now, a lot of musicians can't or won't get out of a space. I mean, Keith Richards is always going to play Chuck Berry. He's not going to suddenly start playing like Aldiniola or, or Sabikis, right. you know? <laughs> yeah. But you seem to be looking for ways to break down the constrictions and, and find the spaces between genres and to make music that is, you know, listenable and accessible which to me ultimately means it's just fun to listen to. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I think that um, in a way, I think that this sense of eclecticism in what I do, which is, I guess, the nature of what finding the space between genres, it's an interesting way to put it. I hadn't really thought about it in those kind of terms before. Um, to me, it comes from it. That's just always been what has excited me about playing. And maybe it's from maybe it's the long long game influence of growing up as a bass player because i was i was a, a jazz bass player on from the age of 12 to you know 21 and upright that was, bass or electric upright bass? bass upright yeah. bass and, and electric but um that was the mission you know in high school and in in college playing in the jazz combo taking you know upright bass lessons you know music theory it was like a jazz bass mission and i think as a result of that you know, for me at least as a bass player, what was exciting was playing all different kinds of music because I love being a bass player, but part of what, you know, but navigating the role of the bass player, what can make that exciting is being in lots of different contexts, being challenged to do, you know, dub or metal or straight ahead jazz because you, you're always the bass player. It's not really about you, it's about the music. So the challenge becomes serving different musics. I think that to some degree that has stayed with me as I become a electronic person, become a guitar player, you know, become a composer, however you want to put it. Um, because just the way I was describing uh, why I love being at Cameo so much. To me, that's what's most exciting about being part of a musical community is the diversity of it all. And being able to go to a place and hear on any given night, you know, noise followed by song, followed by techno, that's kind of still one of my favorite things. And so I think that that's the, that's the space that I've been chasing ever since I finished school and moved back to New York and became a, you know, full-time whatever this is. <laughs> and I think that that's started to hopefully have a, a positive impact on, on the way that I approach making music that I sit down and it's all of the, all of that enters the microcosm and I can kind of look around and, you know, anything is worth a try. That's a great way to end the show. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah. Thanks Dave. Bye guys. All right. It is time now for us to present our next tracks. Kirk, what are you going to be listening to? So for my next track this week, I want to 
talk about another album that I discovered about the same time as Dark Side. It's called Dysnomia. It's by a band called Dawn of Midi. And just like Dark Side, my son turned me on to this music and he says, you absolutely have to hear this. It's a 46 minute piece. It's tracked, I think, at about eight tracks on the album, but it's, it's one long piece. And if you look on iTunes, it's listed as an electronic album, but it's not. It's a piano trio, piano, drums and bass, upright bass. But it sounds like an electronic album. It's this driven rhythmic piece that sounds like electronic music, and it's really hard to describe. So for once, I'm going to keep my next track discussion very short, and I'm going to tell you, go listen to this album. It's really, really good. What about you, Doug? I'm uh, developing a rather maudlin habit here of picking my next track based on recent deaths. Jay Giles passed away last week. He was a founder and the guitarist for the Jay Giles Band. Now, I'm guessing that most people may be aware of their 80s MTV hits, but I go way back with the Jay Giles Band. They were a band from Boston, and I grew up in Providence, so of course I, I knew about them, and we listened to them a lot in junior high school and high school. I think their first three albums are great R&B, and their third album, called Live Full House from 1972, is my pick this week. This album was recorded in Detroit, where they also had a really huge following, and it really demonstrates this incredible energy they had playing live. Now, sure, their studio stuff is power-packed, but like any good live album, you can really feel how they connect with the audience. Jay Giles himself got to shine on a really great version of John Lee Hooker's Serves You Right to Suffer. But most of the time, Jay Giles was just part of the rhythm section, letting singer Peter Wolf and harmonica player Magic Dick handle the frontman duties. Live Full House has some powerhouse covers of Smokey Robinson's First I Look at the Purse, Homework, which is a song by Otis Rush. They've got a couple of R&B gems that they uh, used to perform in their sets all the time, one or two originals on there. It's the sort of live album by which others are judged. In fact, three of their 14 official releases are live, but this is the one I like. It's the Jay Giles Band, Live Full House, and it's my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.